Please turn me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Ephesians 5, 5 through 7. Letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus, the capital city of Asia Minor. Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a proper doctrinal foundation for these believers so they could then live out those doctrines for the glory of God. We're now in the middle of the application section of this letter, so what then is the call now that we're saved? The call is this, to please God with our lives, to use our gifts within the church, to be growing and to be maturing in our faith and to continually be putting off the old man and putting on the new man day by day by day. In other words, now that you're saved and now that you've been made new, the call now is to live like a Christian is called to live more and more because this is who you now are. Paul's been very practical for us what this should look like in the true believer of what we should be continually putting on and putting off, and it's been very challenging. But because we love God so very much, this is what we pursue until we finally arrive in glory. Let's find out what Paul says next, another challenging section for us, verse 5. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who's an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. These are some pretty strong words by Paul, don't you think? Now here, Paul is telling us this very important truth. That those who live in unrepentant, sinful lifestyles won't inherit the kingdom of God. He says it right there. Paul begins in verse 5 by saying, For this you know, and this speaks of absolute certainty. See, the word know here means knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt. In other words, what Paul's going to say next is something that these believers had already clearly known, and it was something that they knew to be permanently, absolutely, and irrevocably true. So clearly, Paul has said this to them many, many times before. What? That no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who's an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. They knew this, see? They knew this for a fact, and there were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. No, it was very, very clear to them. So, let's briefly review this list, and then we'll look at what Paul's saying about these people. Fornicator is from the Greek word porneia, and it originally referred to any excessive behavior or lack of restraint, but it eventually became associated with any sexual excess and indulgence that's outside of marriage. That includes adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, prostitution, and so on. Now, biblically, sex is good and honoring to God within the marriage covenant. But outside the marriage covenant, it's sinful. And look, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Next listed is the unclean person. The word used here describes any substance that's filthy or that's dirty. It includes the actions of the body as well as the thoughts of the mind. So it's talking about any kind of sexual wrongdoing, premarital sex, extramarital sex, sexual sin, or dirtiness of any kind, and pornography of any kind. So it's talking about any kind of moral impurity, moral filth, moral defilement. And look, the unclean person will not inherit the kingdom of God. Next on the list is the covetous man. Covetousness or greed literally means to have more. 
The word refers to a strong desire to acquire more and more possessions, especially that which is forbidden. The word is always used in a bad sense, and it describes an insatiable craving greed that desires the things that are against the laws of God and man. This is indeed a root sin that leads to many other kinds of sins. It's self-centered instead of God-centered, and it's a very serious sin. Look, it's listed in the Ten Commandments alongside such sins as idolatry, adultery, and murder. It angers God, and it leads down a road of other sinful behavior, this thirsting for more things for myself. Me, 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 it's all about me. The Bible says that lusting for more things is something that those who don't know Christ do and focus on. And look, the covetous man will not inherit the kingdom of God. Next on the list is the idolater. Idolatry is the worship or reverence for something other than the one true God who alone deserves our worship and praise. This may refer to images that men bow down to that are made of wood or gold, but it also may refer to any other idols of the heart, such as wealth, pleasure, power, fame, other people, or even yourself, which is what the covetous person does. He worships himself. Idolatry can also include things like sports, trees, rivers, the sun, the moon, nature, an idea, or anything else that we put ahead of God. Paul says that the idolater will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. Now question, why call it the kingdom of Christ and God? To show us that there aren't two kingdoms, but there's one. And while Christ is fully God, he's also distinct from the Father, a distinct person from the Father. The Bible is very clear that we worship one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while each member of the Godhead is fully God, look, each member of the Godhead is a distinct person of that one Godhead. But here Paul makes it clear that there's one kingdom in view here, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of heaven, same thing. So what then is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the sphere of God's dominion over those who belong to Him. The kingdom has three elements. First, the kingdom was here when Christ walked this earth because wherever He was present and exercising authority, the kingdom of heaven was there. Second, because Christ lives in us as believers, the kingdom of God is then present right now in those of us who truly believe. We are now a part of God's eternal kingdom, of His rule, of His heavenly citizenship. See, Jesus is our Lord. He rules in our lives right now. And we are in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is in us. Third, there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is yet to come. It was here when He was exercising His authority. It's here in us now, in a sense. And yet, it's still to come fully in the future. See, soon... He will rule and reign over the whole world in a physical sense, and someday everything will be under His dominion and sway. And that's what's coming for us. And it's going to be good. It's going to be very, very good. Now look, you want to be a part of this kingdom, right? You want to be a part of this kingdom. Heaven, glory, an eternal inheritance that will never spoil, rot, or fade away. Him forever, yeah. You want to be a part of this kingdom, the kingdom of God. And to not be a part of the kingdom means eternal separation from Him in hell. Talking about eternal wrath, eternal punishment because of your sin that condemns you and keeps you out of this kingdom. So question, 
How do you become a part of the kingdom of God? You become a part of the kingdom of God by surrendering to Christ, the king of the kingdom, in true repentant faith in him alone as Savior and Lord. See, we're all sinners, and sin condemns us to hell because the just wages for sin, every sin, is hell. And because God is a God who is infinite and eternal, then every sin that's committed against our infinite and eternal God is worthy of infinite and eternal wages, eternity in hell. The good news is that Jesus, God the Son, the King of the kingdom, left heaven and came here. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in the believer's place. And he rose up from the dead three days later. And it's through faith in him, because of what he did on that cross, that you can be declared righteous, right, and fit for the kingdom of heaven. See, because of him, you can be cleansed of all your sin that condemns you. And because of that, you can then go to heaven instead of hell. How? Because on the cross, Jesus took the sin of every person who would ever believe in all of history onto himself. And God the Father punished Jesus for all that sin so that he wouldn't have to punish you. Jesus, see, became the believer's substitute for sin. Jesus paid up on the cross what you couldn't pay up for all eternity in hell. And in return, he gives you, the believer, his righteousness that fits you perfectly for heaven. And that's how... Undeserving sinners like us can be a part of the amazing and the eternal kingdom of God. By grace through faith in Christ the King. Because of what he did on the cross for everyone who believes. When he became the believer's substitute for sin and paid our wretched wages in our place. Talk about good news. This is the best news there is. So so look. All it takes to be a part of the kingdom of God is to surrender to Christ in repentant faith. That's it. That's it. It's faith alone. It's not anything that I have done. No, he did it all in my place as a believer. Okay, you say, then why all this talk about all these people who won't inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, what if they have faith, but they're still fornicators and unclean and covetous and idolaters? I thought we were saved by faith alone. Well, we are. However, Ephesians has made it very clear that the Spirit of God not only saves people at conversion and gives them new life, but the Spirit of God also changes the hearts and the lives of those who truly believe. And so, those who have been truly made new, we now love Him with passion and heart. And our love for Him now compels us to honor Him and to obey Him. And so the fruit of our salvation is made clear because it's seen in the way that we live. So Christ not only justifies us, but He also sanctifies us more and more and more, which then compels us to make it our heartfelt aim to glorify this God whom we love, this God who has rescued us. See, picture it like this. Paul mentions this in Galatians as well, and, and John talks about this in 1 John. That those without Christ are in the flesh, which is also called the old man, while we who have been saved are in the spirit, which is also called the new man. And look, the flesh and the spirit are contrary to one another. Note that the term flesh isn't referring to our physical flesh and blood and bones, but rather the flesh is referring to the depraved nature that was inherited from Adam to the sinful nature that opposes that which is godly and spiritual. 
Biblically, all non-Christians are in the flesh. That means that the Spirit of God is not dwelling in them. Therefore, they're not saved, and therefore their nature is fleshly. It's sinful, unredeemed, dark, and it's fallen. That said, for us in Christ, even though we are in the Spirit, look, the flesh still has a remaining influence on us, and we are called to battle against it. See, we in Christ have been given new life. Amen? Anybody? Right? We have God the Spirit living inside of us, and now we in Christ are no longer in the flesh, and our fallen sinful nature has now been replaced with a new spiritual nature, with new hearts that have been washed clean, praise the Lord, and that's the biblical reality. However, while we as Christians are no longer in the flesh, guess what? We know this, we still have to battle against the flesh. John MacArthur says that we battle because while we have a new nature and a new heart, it's incarcerated in our unredeemed human flesh. So he says that's why we have a spiritual battle, because a new man in us is battling our flesh. Martin Lloyd-Jones likened it to Lazarus who had been raised up from the dead. Lazarus was dead for four days. Think about that, dead for four days. Jesus came and gave life to him. But when he came out of the tomb, he still had the old grave clothes on him that he had been wrapped in. And Lloyd-Jones says that we too have been given new life in Christ, but we still have our old grave clothes on that we have to continually be shedding. And the battle with our unredeemed flesh is like us shedding those old grave clothes day by day by day by day until glory. And so even as Christians who have been saved, justified, cleansed, and been given a new nature with God himself indwelling us, guess what? We still have to battle the flesh. Anybody sick of this already? Right? Right? But it's the truth. John Piper says it like this. The decisive battle has been fought and won by the Spirit. The Spirit has captured the capital and broken the back of the resistance movement. The flesh is as good as dead. Its doom is sure, but there are outlying pockets of resistance. The gorillas of the flesh will not lay down their arms, and they must be fought back daily. And he's right. So while our victory is sure, we still must battle until that time is fully realized in glory. And that's the key. Christians battle. We battle. See, A Christian isn't a person who has no bad desires. (laughs) No, no. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, why do I get into this? Because people might see these words in verse 5, that no fornicator, no unclean person, no idolater, and, and no covetous man will enter into the kingdom of God, and they might think, well, then I'm doomed. I'm doomed because I deal with all of these sins on a regular basis, or at least most of them. Now, on top of that, a parallel passage in Galatians 5 lists more of the sins of the people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And it's very indicting. Look at at what Paul says there in Galatians 5. He says, sorcery. Okay, well, good. I don't deal with sorcery. Hatred. Huh. Sometimes, you know. Contentions. Jealousies. Uh oh. Outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambition. Oh no. Disputes, dissensions, heresies, envy. Yikes. 
murderers. Okay, I got that one. I haven't murdered anybody. Yeah, but I'm not doing so well with the others on this list. Drunkenness, revelries, and then Paul adds the like, which includes a whole bunch of other sins and descriptions of people who won't enter the kingdom of God. The like, I mean, this is bad. This is really bad because I battle with most of these sins. So what does Paul mean when he says that no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man who's an idolater has any inheritance inheritance, got ahead of myself, in the kingdom of Christ and God? Is he saying that if you mess up and commit one of these sins that you're out? What's he saying? Well, at the end of verse 6, Paul describes these people as sons of disobedience. And that's very important because that phrase describes a way of life, an aim, a direction, a lifestyle. That's key. In a parallel passage in Galatians 5, Paul says it this way, verse 21. I've already told you, and I'll say it again, that those who practice, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The key word there is the word practice. That word means to perform something repeatedly, which is speaking of a continuous action. So this speaks of a habitual practice or of a lifestyle where you unceasingly pursue that thing. So here in Ephesians, Paul's clearly talking about sinful lifestyles, which the phrase sons of disobedience makes clear. And then in the parallel passage in Galatians 5, Paul is also clearly talking about sinful lifestyles, which the term practice makes very clear. And that's important, again, for us to understand. Again, that this is talking about the habitual lifestyle of a person, the course of their life, the pattern of their life, the aim the direction of their life. And look, if the practice and direction of your life is fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, idolatry, or any other sin for that matter, look, no kingdom of God. No kingdom of God. Why? Because the Christian's lifestyle is a lifestyle of loving Christ, of glorifying Christ, and of obeying and pleasing Christ. See, we battle, and while we may lose some, if not many of those battles, we continue to battle nonetheless because we love Him and our aim, our direction is clear. Picture a fish in a fishbowl. What's his atmosphere? Water. Good. One person got it. Water, right? In a similar manner, the non-Christian will live in the fishbowl of sin and the flesh and of the sins that we've listed in chapter 5, while the Christian will live in the fishbowl of the Spirit and of holiness. And again, that doesn't mean that we will never sin. And it doesn't mean that we won't have our struggles with sin. And it doesn't mean that we won't have to battle some besetting sins, which are those sins that we all have to deal with on a more frequent level. It doesn't mean that. Again, this is talking about aim, lifestyle, direction, and atmosphere. So just because we struggle and just because we find ourselves having to go to God with the, these struggles on a regular basis, it doesn't mean that we're going to hell. And it doesn't mean that we're not in the kingdom. Not necessarily. Here's the key. Are you struggling? Are you fighting it? Are you battling it? Do you get up when you fall? Do you truly repent? And, and do you move on in the right direction? See, Christians struggle against it. Non-Christians live with it and embrace it and put up with it. 
They embrace them. They aren't battling for the glory of God. And they practice these things in the same way that they did before they claimed to be Christians. That's not good at all. So Christians lapse, yes. And they deal with besetting sins, yes. We all deal with lust and we all deal with pride. That's common to all men. We know that. The Bible's clear about that. But they don't stay there. They don't live there unashamedly. So again, the idea isn't a Christian that a Christian could never commit these sins, but they don't stay in these sins and they battle those sins for the glory of God. And if people don't repent but coldly continue to fulfill the desires of the flesh without caring about what God thinks about it, it's a sure sign that they aren't sincere nor real. So again, struggling is a good sign. Keep it up. Don't give in to it. Keep fighting. Never quit. But look, Not really caring is a very bad sign. And continuing on in your sinful lifestyle without seeking to repent and to come out of it, that's a bad sign too. Some people want to have it both ways, don't they? They want to live in and they want to revel in their sinful lifestyle and they still want into the kingdom of God. It's very convenient. So what do they do? They twist scriptures to make it say what they want it to say. No, 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 I feel this way. So I'm going to ignore entire portions of Scripture, especially everything that Paul says. I don't like what Paul says. Or else I'm going to turn the Scriptures upside down and so that I can feel better with my lifestyle of sin and continue to live in it and even to exalt it. And sadly, many churches will cater to this wretchedness that does no soul any good whatsoever. So now, America is filled with heretical churches and sinful churches and churches that are filled with unrepentant sinners and they're telling those unrepentant sinners that all is well when all isn't well. It's not going to change what God says. Please, don't do this with any sin in your life because you're lying to yourself and you're playing with your soul. Instead, hear what God's word says, repent if you need to, and then flee to him with it. And the good news is that he will help you. And while the battle is fierce, guess what? We can indeed grow and move forward when we use his means for growth. The word of God, prayer, and each other. And while we won't arrive in uh, this side of heaven at perfection, hey, it's not a losing battle. It's not a losing battle, and the end is glory. So battle on. Keep taking ground. Keep maturing. Keep growing. Keep moving forward and battle on. Fight on, my men, Sir Andrew said. I am hurt, but I am not yet slain. I'll lay me down and bleed a while, and then I'll rise and fight again. That's the heart of a true Christian when it comes to sin, to every sin. We get up, we return, and we fight on because we love the Lord. What about you? Paul goes on and gives us three warnings. First, don't be deceived by empty words. In other words, don't listen to those who say otherwise because they are liars. Deceive means to lead astray, to mislead, to cheat, to beguile, and to seduce into error. The warning here is that there are deceivers all around us, and we need to not listen to them and to their empty words. Empty means words without content, words that have no inner substance or kernel of truth. Talking about lies that may sound really good, but they're devoid of truth. Don't, don't be deceived by them. Many people are being deceived by them today. Many churches, many denominations. Don't be deceived. Why would Paul give this warning? 
Because he needs to, right? Because the deceivers are out there and too many people let themselves get deceived. Look, Satan has always done a good job of sowing false teachers in with the good ones. He loves to mix error with the truth. He loves to mix sin with purity. And so when the truth is being preached and taught, Satan counteracts that by twisting the truth around with lies that sound really good, but that are deadly at the same time. He did this with Eve in the garden. Has God really said? And he continues to do it today because it works so very well. So he raises up false teachers, his deceivers, to infiltrate the church. False teachers abounded in Paul's day. Many of the false teachers basically taught that it wasn't really that important what we believe about Jesus. Kind of important. As long as we profess his name and proclaim that we're Christians. They focused on experience. They focused on having a secret knowledge. They taught that how you live really doesn't matter. And Satan was using them and their lies to greatly hurt the people of God. Just say you love Jesus, but what you believe about him doesn't really matter. Yeah, it, it does matter. Gordon MacDonald said that false teachers take their place inside the church. They pose as ministers of the gospel. This is what makes the peril so great. If they came right out and said they were atheists or agnostics, people would be on guard. But they are masters of deception. They carry the Bible and use orthodox expressions, though using them to mean something entirely different. And he's right. So they're sneaky. They're counterfeits who pose as the real thing. And if you're not careful, you're going to be captured in their snare of lies. In Acts chapter 20, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible... The Apostle Paul's on his way to prison in Rome when he's able to meet with the elders of the church in Ephesus. He loved these men. He, he loved the church there, clearly, as we have seen throughout the book of Ephesus. He ministered there for a long time, and in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, he gave them this warning. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. What a warning. See, Paul knew how the wicked one worked. So he gave the elders the grave warning that false teachers were going to arise from within the church and try to lead them away. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Soon, the church in Ephesus would be facing turmoil from these false teachers. And then later on, the church as a whole would leave their first love, Jesus, because they took their focus off of him and off of his truth. They didn't abide in him. And they put their focus on themselves and on the lives of wicked men. And if it happened to them, it can happen to us if we're not on guard. Daniel Defoe said, whenever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. So whenever the true work of God is found, it's not long before satanic counterfeits begin to infiltrate, warping the truth, telling us what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear the truth of God, tickling ears at the expense of the truth of God and seeking to deceive the people of God into sin and into lies and into mediocrity. That sin isn't wrong. It's not. Indulge it. Give in to it. Don't battle against it. Live in sin so that grace may abound. How you live doesn't really matter much to God. Don't worry about it. 
People living in sinful lifestyles are fine. It's not, a, not that big of a deal. Love will prevail. God is sympathetic with our frail human nature. You see how it works? But it won't change the truth of God. And he clearly says that for true believers, sin must be battled all sin. And Christ's glory is our aim because Christians love him and we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. So we battle. Look, our only authority is God's word. That is it, right? Our call is to believe it, to love it, to rightly divide it, to live it out, even when it convicts us and cuts us and calls us out and means that we have to change our whole life because it's the truth of God. Fools ignore it or redefine it or distort it to their eternal detriment. Don't you be deceived. The stakes are too high to let yourself be deceived. So, stop embracing sin, if you are. Stop putting up with it in your life. No, you fight it. Every one. You battle. You repent. You give it to God. Stop twisting scripture so you can revel in your sinful lifestyle, if you are. Stop lying to yourself. Stop deceiving yourself or listening to those who want to make you feel good in your sin as you head to hell. Stop that because those lies aren't doing anyone any good. There's a lot of people out there believing these lies. Second warning, that because of these things, the wrath of God comes to the sons of disobedience. What things? Well, the sins that we just listed. And again, talking about lifestyle. It's interesting because the expression sons of disobedience is an idiom that speaks of a people who are characterized by disobedience. See, this is who they are. They are disobedient to God. This is their lifestyle. They have no desire to love God nor to obey God. They are unbelievers, even though they may claim to be believers. One noted, these people are children of unbelief in doctrine. They are children of disobedience in practice, and therefore, they are children of wrath. And that's right. So the chief characteristic of these individuals is disobedience in general. Disobedience. Our chief characteristic is loving obedience. Their chief characteristic is disobedience. They have the character of their father, the devil. The atmosphere of their lives, the aim, the direction of their lives, isn't to honor and love and glorify God. No, it's sin. The sins mentioned earlier and other sins as well, it's disobedience. It's rebellion against God, which describes a non-believer regardless of what they claim. Look, Christians love him, anybody? And, and we seek to obey him. Non-Christians don't truly love him, and their disobedience to him proves that fact. So, can someone say, I love him, but I still choose to live in this sin and embrace this sinful lifestyle in my life without fighting it, and without struggling against it, and without battling it? Can you do that? No, Paul would say no. Because Christ changes us. Christ makes us new. Christians love Him, not perfectly, but we love Him. We love what He loves and we hate what He hates. We want to please Him. We want to obey Him. We want to glorify Him. That's our great aim. And this is what we are striving for. This is what we are pressing on in. Again, not perfectly, but it's our aim. Non-Christians don't love Him regardless of what they claim. And their lives are marked by disobedience and their direction is clear. And this disobedient lifestyle gives them a way as not being true Christians, as not being a part of the kingdom of God. Result for these sons of disobedience, these unbelievers, what's it say? Wrath. Wrath. 
Not a pleasant topic, but true and one that needs to be discussed and understood. When we talk about God's wrath, we're not talking about someone with a bad temper who flies off the handle over the slightest irritation. No. Instead, God's wrath, orge in the Greek, is a part of God's holy nature. Orge is God's settled, determined, active opposition to all sin. If God loves righteousness, and he does, he also must hate evil, which he does. If God were all love and no wrath, then he wouldn't be God because he would be unrighteous. I mean, if a judge was all love and hugs toward cold-blooded murderers, then he wouldn't be a righteous judge. And in like manner, God wouldn't be holy or good if he didn't react to evil with wrath and righteous judgment. So again, God's wrath is his holy hatred of all that's unholy. It's his righteous indignation at everything that is unrighteous. It's very real. One pastor notes that God's wrath signifies the strongest kind of anger, that which reaches fever fever pitch when God's mercy and grace are fully exhausted. It'll mark the end of God's patience and tolerance with unregenerate, unrepentant mankind in the swelling of his final furious anger, which he will vent on those whose works evidence their persistent and unswerving rebellion against him. It's a very real thing. It's a very real thing. Look, the revelation of God's wrath began in the Garden of Eden when he passed the sentence of death upon Adam and Eve as well as their descendants. The wrath of God was later revealed in a worldwide flood that drowned all mankind except for eight souls. It was revealed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and also in the drowning of Pharaoh's army. But then, the greatest revelation of God's wrath was when it was poured out in full force on the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, on the cross so it wouldn't have to be poured out onto us who believe. And then look, at the end of this present age, all who have rejected Christ as Lord and Savior will face the wrath of God against sin by being eternally punished for that sin. He must do this as a just and holy God. And here's the verdict. Either the wrath of God against your sin was poured out onto Christ as your substitute because you've surrendered to him in repentant faith or else it will soon be poured out onto you as a son of disobedience for all eternity. It's one way or the other. There's no in between. It is real and it can't be ignored. And Christ is our only hope. He is our only source of rescue from this wrath. Won't you surrender to Christ in repentant faith today and be saved from the wrath to come? Those who are sons of disobedience, those who live in sin and love their sin, those who aren't seeking to fight their sin and to glorify God as lovers of God, they will face God's wrath against them and they will face that wrath for all eternity in hell. It's a very, very serious thing that Paul is saying here. The third warning is this. That's the conclusion of the matter. He says, therefore, don't be partakers with them, verse 7. Here, Paul is warning them against lapsing into their old vices and sins. He's warning them against falling back into the old ruts in the road that they once traveled, but they aren't traveling anymore. So he says, don't be partakers with them. The word partaker means partner, and it speaks of intimacy and of sharing something. What? Disobedience. So Paul's being very clear here. Don't join the world in its evil and disobedient ways. Don't let the world's stain and stink rub off on you. 
Don't listen to them. Don't partner with them. Don't let them fit you into their sinful and ugly mold. No, but you glorify Christ and battle for the God-honoring life. What Paul says here in verse 7 is the same thing that the psalmist is saying in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So we find that the blessed man or woman, and you definitely want to be blessed, look, he's careful about his company. Same thing that Paul's saying. It's interesting to note that the verbs walking, standing, and sitting are all in the perfect mood, which emphasize that the godly are never involved with anything that's tainted with evil. And whether they're walking or standing or sitting or laying down or driving or hopping or skipping or whatever, they flee the things that are not of God. Or as Paul says, they're not partakers with these things or with these people. See, they can't be around ungodly things because they love the Lord who is holy. They can't have communion with evil because they're children of God who love their heavenly Father. And because He hates sin, so do they. And so they fight it, they flee it, they battle fiercely against it. Look, they can't sit with the scornful because the scornful sit near the gate of hell. And that's no place for the person who loves God and who's blessed by God. But instead, the blessed by God are the ones who keep good company, godly company, company that won't drag them away from the Lord and into the sinful ways that are offensive to God. See, the blessed man knows that bad company corrupts godly behavior, so he guards himself. And so, instead of walking in the counsel of the ungodly, (coughs) instead of ordering his life after the ways of the world, instead of taking his cues in life from sinful men rather than holy God and God's holy word, he guards himself against these evil snares which are all around us. So, instead of sitting in the seat of the scornful, instead of hanging with those who mock God, who sin, who who mock the ways of holiness, instead of enduring evil words and behavior that drags us down, the blessed man guards himself against these evil snares. See, you mess around with sin, you will pay. And it will drag you away from your God and towards sin. And it's never worth it. And the blessed man is very careful about this. The Bible clearly tells us that we as Christians are called to be separate. We're called to be holy (coughs) in an unholy world. We're called to be set apart from the sinful ways of so many around us. We're called to be blameless and harmless in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, an ancient name for Satan? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. Verse 17 then says, To come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And just as Israel was called to be separate from the ways of the evil world around them, so too are we as Christians called to be separate from the ways of the evil world around us. And so we need to be careful, not just with who we date and of who we marry. We need to be careful about that. But also of who we walk with and sit with and stand with. And no. This doesn't mean that we can't work with non-Christians, that we can't go to school with non-Christians, that we spurn our family members who aren't Christians, that we have to shut ourselves off from the rest of society and go live in a cave somewhere. It doesn't mean that, of course not. But it does mean that we carefully guard ourselves so that our godliness isn't compromised by the company that we keep. So, choose your friends carefully. 
Guard what you hear. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you hang out with and who you spend time with because the tendency is for them to rub off on you more than you rub off on them. So take heed. Don't be partakers with them. You're a fool if you do. How many times have we seen our friends hang out with the wrong crowd and get carried away in sin by them? How many times have we seen our children get influenced by ungodly friends that they should have spurned a long time ago? How many times have we let our un- other ungodly people influence us and carry us off into sin and compromise? Beware. Take heed. Be careful. It's interesting that Paul begins this section by telling us that we are God's dear children, verse 1, who are citizens of the kingdom of God and who are called to be consistent with our identity. But note how Paul ends this section with the children of disobedience. And the contrast is very stark. Children of wrath disobey and they embrace their sin. While dear children of God love him and they obey him and they fight the sin for the glory of God. Is that true of you? Let me just remind you of that. You are a dear, you as a Christian are a dear child of God. Let me remind you of that. This is true only for us in Christ, because not every person is a dear child of God. This is a family term. This is a term that's reserved only for Christians. God loves believers with a particular love, see, with an infinite, agape, covenant, eternal and saving love that seeks us out and that keeps us in. We, the saved, are his beloved. We are his chosen, his bride, his dear ones, who alone can call him our Abba Father. He loves us in particular, with an agape love. Agape love is specific to Christians, and it speaks of God's unconditional, sacrificial, covenant family love. Talking about God's specific love for you, His saved and dearly beloved child that He died for to redeem. What about this love? Well, it's perfect right now. He will never love you any more or any less than He loves you right now because He loves you fully and perfectly right now as His child. Your actions as a Christian don't affect God's love for you. Your actions can glorify Him, honor Him, and be well-pleasing to Him, yes. They can also grieve Him and sadden Him, but they won't affect His agape love for you, no. See, God didn't love us because we loved Him. He loved us before we had an ounce of love for Him. His love is sovereign. His love is infinite. His love is without limit. His love is for us is beyond measure. It doesn't change. It's giving and gracious. And get this, nothing can separate us from the love of God that he has for us, his children, Romans eight thirty nine. Try to think about the love that God has for you. And it's real. Tony read that great song. It's real and it's intense. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. God's love was fixed on us and it flowed out to us, his people, freely. And look, his love doesn't depend on what we are. It flows from his own heart. It isn't a love of something good in us. It's because of everything good in him. How much does he love you? He gave his son for you. For you. One said, if I realize that God loves me, loves me infinitely, loves me eternally, then I can do anything for God and I can suffer anything from the hand of God. Because we know that a God who loves us this much can be trusted even when things are hard. This love gives us perspective. This love raises us above our trials. This love comforts us in our lonely hours and in our seasons of sickness and sorrow. And this love inspires us to be courageous and boldly and godly because a God like this 
is worthy of our passionate love in return. Anybody? He's worthy. So show it. How? Love him back. Battle sin. Pursue Christ more and more. And don't be partakers with those who are going to pull you away from him. And fight on. Fight on for his glory, compelled by love. Passionate love to do so. Is that true of you? May God speak to our hearts today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to love you, to love you passionately, to love you fervently, because you are worthy. And Lord, I pray that we would all examine ourselves, our lifestyle, our direction, and take comfort or take heed. And Lord, that we would pursue you with passion, that we would be good fighters here for your glory, pleasure, and honor. Encourage us with your words. We love you. We thank you. Bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen.